Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. This week we're on episode 33. Before we get down to talking to our fantastic guest this week, Claire, I was thinking, you and I had a conversation about this, about how it is that you come up with the list of names each week, how it is that you do your research. And I was thinking, because we know lots of listeners are doing their own research and are either proper historians or are kind of citizen historians or they're researching their own family, it's always useful, I think, to share different research tools. If they don't know about them already, then it might be helpful to them. So I was thinking, could you tell us what it is that you use to do your research into the witches' names, please? I think a lot of people who independently research these things have actually gone far beyond what I do. An example, a recent example is Judith Gorman, who is researching the Forfer women killed as witches. And she has done a lot more work actually going to archives, actually going to records. Because of the pandemic, I've kind of been stuck using what sources I can from the internet, obviously. But my first and original source was the Source Book of Scottish Witchcraft. That's a book written by Christina Larner, Christopher Heigley, and Hugh McLachlan, and published by the Grimsey Press. Now, you can now that's it. the big book. You and I first started working together. You gifted me a copy of the big book. It's massive. I like did. It's big, you know, size of, size of thing, which I think gives an, an idea of how much info is in it. I did. And sadly, that contained all the names of the people who at that time, when those researches were being done, those researchers had found this book, which was, I think, published in the 70s originally. Just check if that's right. Yeah, it was published in 1977. And the book that you can buy is in its original form. But it's been updated uh, a little, but with a preface to the print in 2005 by Hugh McLachlan, one of the writers. And he explains that for almost 30 years, the source book of Scottish witchcraft had been the most authoritative reference book on Scottish witchcraft, and it's been invaluable to specialist scholars and of interest to the general reader, but provides much more than a series of list of the names and addresses of the long-dead witches. He points out that before that time, the only book on the matter had been a 1938 book which George F. Black, a Scotsman who was in charge of the New York Public Library, had published, and that was called A Calendar of Cases of Witchcraft in Scotland, 1510 to 1727. So that's really interesting that in the 30s, a Scotsman was in charge of the New York Public Library and obviously had an interest in seeing Scotland's history being recorded. So... Obviously, since that time of the 70s, we've moved on greatly with technology. 
and we have got the internet stuff which we refer to every week, which is the database and the interactive map, which references Larner as well as other documents. But what I thought was really interesting when speaking with Judith before is that they're uncovering more people that aren't mentioned in the book, the source book, and aren't mentioned elsewhere. And of course, that's because the people that compiled the source book only had a finite amount of money to, mm -hmm. to do their work. So that they went to the primary places where they would find information, like the court records, privy council records. But they didn't obviously go to every small place and look individually at all those records. If you like, they were kind of looking at the centralised records. And our guest today is in fact going to tell us that in her area, there were nine people killed as witches total. And some of those don't appear in the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft or the book. So they've uncovered by their investigations more people. And I just think how important the work is that people are doing, listeners are doing, by checking these archives and uncovering these people themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think it's it's great and fascinating work to be able to do that sort of archive stuff. When I was wee, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I always wanted to read lots of really, really old books. And strangely, I do read lots of really old books, <laughs> but I don't do any of the exciting Indiana Jones stuff. Well, I've got quite a lot of my garden that needs dug out at the moment. So if you want to practice your archaeological skills, <laughs> uh, I, I will gift you that. There was not a beat. You were right in there to see how you could turn my want to dig to your advantage. It's because every week where we record, I sit at a bedroom window in the upstairs of our house and I can look out onto my garden and each week I look out onto it and I just go, oh my God, it looks so bad. So I'm just always... <laughs> Every single week, I'm like with one hand up to my eye almost, so I don't have to look at how bad my garden looks. Uh, well, so. I'm, I'm giving a hard pass on that, I think. I'll just... Look, if you change your mind, let me know. Okay, might, might come to you. So the other thing we wanted to talk about as well is that we're having a bit of a change to how we're going to be putting out the podcast, which is because we have got like a few different projects that we can't really speak about just now. This is, this is so funny. This is like people do this on Twitter all the time. They go, I've got some big personal news, but I can't share it. <laughs> We're like that now. We've got some big news, but we can't share it. So because of that, we are going to go down to every two weeks for an episode to come out. And we'll be doing that quite soon, won't we, Claire? Yes, I think as of next week, we will be going down to fortnightly. We're doing quite a lot of work. We're trying to liaise with as many groups as we can, political groups, and we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that when the petition hits the new Justice Committee, whenever that is formed, we will be able to try and persuade as many people as possible to be in support of it. So we're working our way behind the scenes and we thought that whilst we're doing this, we would drop down to another period. We still have, I mean, I think I counted 15 different people at the moment that we're hoping to have on that we've we've spoken to the list just keeps growing so it's not for want of people that we've got to speak to but it's just for want of time and having to focus on other matters to make sure that the petition and all that goes with it has the best chance of working yeah and it's not bad considering when you and i first talked about this you had in mind sort of maybe six to ten episodes it wasn't that basis that it was sold to my brother if you would just sound engineered these six to 12 episodes. 
Yes. Now, what I think is really professional about what you did there was you were able to introduce your brother, David Mitchell, our sound engineer, who is available for other projects, if you'd like to Oh, he does. Very good. He takes the sow's ear of our raw recordings and makes them into it. I mean, it's maybe like a low sort of satin polyester purse that he comes up with. (laughs) I'm not not, saying it's silk. It's not silk, but that's not his fault. That's our fault. No, it's much improved. It's taking some quite raw, raw material and making it a little bit more finessed. So that's good. But he is available for that. And we've said this before, but I just want to reiterate this. Thank you so much, David. Because we, we don't pay him because we don't get any money for doing the podcast. This is all just the labor of which is delightful. But um, we have now started selling very snazzy merchandise. Claire, I saw you raise your Witches of Scotland mug there. Yes, very yes. nice. So if you have a look on the website, there's a link to the merchandise that's there. And there's some quite snazzy stuff. And we've got people around the world who've been buying things. So there's hoodies, T-shirts, bags, I think, mugs. One of our listeners, Leslie, is in Nova Scotia, and I was so tickled when she said it had been there. You know, to think something of witches of Scotland yeah. there is just amazing. It's brilliant. So all the profits for that are going to David to pay David for his time because he does spend a lot of time on this and does do it for free. Um, and Claire's just basically kind of made him as as his big sister. I don't know what she did. She maybe like twisted his arm behind his back or something like that I don't know no, he's, he's happy to do it he believes it. in the cause yes no he's he's very good so there, I would go and have a look the mugs are really snazzy I like drinking out my mug it's nice yeah. but um, we are really pleased for those of you that have already bought merchandise so please do have a look and see if there's anything that takes your fancy it's quite a nice sort of covert way in the office of signalling to other people that you're into witches as well if you've got a witches <laughs> mug just by Casually, when people are talking to you, just raising it up. They just raise your mug up, raise it up, and just sort of indicate to them that you're not to be messed with. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay. So, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce to you our guest, who is coming to us all the way from Shetland. Today we have a special guest who is joining us all the way from Shetland and that is Laurie Goodlad who's a writer, podcaster, curator and tour guide. Laurie, welcome to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and thank you for having me on the show. I've actually never been a guest on a podcast before so I host my own podcast but I've never been a guest so thank you for having oh, me. Oh, we're so delighted. We're so delighted. And we came in contact with one another because of social media and just interacting, us as the Witches of Scotland and us finding out about you. You are on Insta as, is it Laurie in Shetland? It is Shetland with Laurie. Shetland with Laurie, okay. (laughs) Almost. Is that where you just, you you know, to click on it? And it's a super, super popular Insta page, isn't it? Yeah, I'm approaching 10,000 followers, so it's... It's getting there. It's been a few years working at it. And yeah, I enjoy it, though. It's a fantastic community. And I mean, that's how I got to find your podcast and get in touch with you. So I just think Instagram is such a good community. I really enjoy it. It's it's kind of the midpoint between Facebook and Twitter. You know, Twitter is just like it's too out there sometimes, you know, and Facebook is maybe too much in depth where people have like, you know, there's too much you can say. But Insta's like, Here's a picture and here's a few facts. 
Yeah, I think that people have the option whether to just enjoy your simple picture or have a bit of information too. I have to admit that I have no idea how to use Twitter. I've tried and I just have like a complete Twitter block. I'm just, I don't know, complete block Twitter. So you'll know, you'll know, find my page very active there. I do have a page and I have no idea what the handle is. <laughs> well, I can tell you, it probably saves hours of every day of your life. Yeah, I think social media does eat up time. I have a, a timer set on my phone, so it warns me if I've spent more than an hour on social media a day. Oh, good for oh, you. I would have to say very grown up and responsible. Yeah, but you can hit ignore reminder. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it is telling you that. Like, I'm warning you. This is your first warning. Get off so tell us a wee bit about yourself and tell us why our interests and your interests overlap. Okay, yeah. I grew up here in Shetland and I studied history and politics. So history is really what drives me. It's what I'm passionate about and it's kind of what gets me out of bed every day. So I studied that at university and then I did my master's in museum and gallery studies. And for 10 years, I worked as a curatorial assistant at the Shetland Museum and Archives. And I left there maybe three years ago and started my business, which is kind of tour guiding, and I do writing for various publications and online. And I still do lots of research. And at the moment, I'm working as a contract curator at Scalwa Museum. And it was actually one of my friends that pointed me towards your podcast. And I'd been meaning to research the witches in Shetland for a long time. And it really just spurred me on. When I was growing up, my bedroom window actually overlooked the Gallow Hill. So it was the hill that the witches in Shetland were executed on. So every morning I opened up the curtains and I could see the Gallow Hill. And I often thought about the women and the men that were executed there and kind of just fascinated by their stories and who they were and what their lives looked like. I think that we sometimes forget that behind all these stories in history, we have real people, like real everyday people, just like you and I. So, so yeah, your podcast spurred me on to do some research and find Shetland witches. So that's what I did. <laughs> that's lovely to hear. That's so cool. And did you know much about what happened in Shetland when you were growing up? Yeah, I, I mean, I was really lucky in that my family were kind of interested in the past and interested in our kind of heritage and Shetland story. So I grew up with the stories of the witches and, of course, living in Scalloway, we were always told that that's the Gallow Hill, that's where people were executed. And there's a point on the hill that we call the Witches' Warp. And so it was something that we always knew about, but really beyond this is where the witches were born. We never knew how many. I mean, for all I knew growing up, it could have been thousands of women. Or, but yeah, it's something that was kind of ingrained in us and that we, we knew the stories and it's stories that our children know and you kind of pass it down. So It's interesting that you have that oral tradition, which is still very strong. Is that a general feature of Shetland? Yeah, definitely. I would say that oral tradition here is very, very strong and we're really, really lucky in that a lot of the oral traditions and the stories have been passed down and they've been recorded. And so we have a really rich oral history here. I'm not sure why I think that Shetland has such a rich oral tradition. 
but it certainly feels very set apart from Scotland. And I think that that's because our the kind of story of Shetland is different to the story of Scotland in many ways until, I suppose, the collision in the 17th century where we have the witch trials here too. Isn't it interesting that there is that collision in time which links Shetland to the rest of the, the country? I mean, we did a podcast a while ago now with Paula Keel over in Ireland where they, just across the water from Scotland, again, in terms of geographical distances and over there they had so few witch trials they never really I suppose they really couldn't have what could it be described as a satanic panic as it were the witch trials didn't take off there but it's interesting that Scotland and Shetland as part of it came together at that point. Yeah I think that there's a few factors at play there I mean we're thinking about the 17th century and kind of rewinding a little bit, Shetland became part of Scotland in 1469. But right up until 1611, we continued to follow the Scandinavian laws of the Norse law. And it wasn't until 1611 that Norse law and the law book were abolished. And that was an act of parliament that came from Scotland, abolishing Norse law that Shetlanders and Shetland had followed since the Viking and Norse times. And then only a few years after that, we start to see the witch trials. So 1616 was a famous one where three women were executed in one trial. I don't know if it was in response to that change in how we were governed and legislated over, but it certainly seems to have had an impact. What is the history of witchcraft in Shetland? I know that's a big ask for you to explain to the listeners of the podcast and I know you've done a lot of work on it indeed we'll be doing your own podcast so when you do please let us know so we can let our listeners hear much fuller and much better stories because no doubt you'll have lots of opportunities over a lot of podcasts to tell them but can you tell us the general first of all, story of witchcraft in Shetland? Yeah, so I mean witchcraft is noted here since certainly since Norse times in Norse times, you could be acquitted of witchcraft if you performed the Saxter Eighth, which was the sixfold oath, in that you had to get five people to kind of be character witness for you. And if you could persuade these five people to kind of testify and say that you were a good person, then you were acquitted. So witchcraft has been known in Shetland, certainly since Norse times, and I kind of look at witchcraft and divide it into two distinct categories. So you have like the accepted witches is what I'm calling them and the unaccepted witches. And the accepted witches are generally people within the community, usually older women, maybe spinsters that live alone, that rely on the goodwill of the community. They rely on charity and help from their neighbours. And it's believed that they might have certain powers that they can cure an ailing animal or they can cure an ailing child. But on the same hand, they can use their power to take away the profit from the buyer. So they can stop your cow from milking. They can transform sometimes into an animal. There's stories of witches in Shetland who have transformed into a bird. And they've gone to sea, like many miles out to sea, and they're able to see the men that are at the whaling, for instance, and they can tell their families when to expect them home. So there's a, a story of one witch who told the mother, 
that her son would be home the following week. And they'd been at sea for months and months at the well. And, and she even knew how many, like how much of a catch they had on board the boat. So those are the kind of accepted witches within Shetland's folklore or history. And then you have unaccepted witches. And those are the ones who, for some reason, are punished through law and they're executed and they're burned at the stake. So treated very differently, but in most cases, their actions are the same. And so we're thinking about why they're treated differently. And I have found some evidence as to why they're treated differently, but again, it seems that a lot of it is to do with the time that they were living, so when they were alive. So it was just their luck that at the time they were alive and the idea of them being a witch was being attributed to them, that was a dangerous time. And that was when they became the unaccepted witches. Were the people identifying themselves as witches? Hmm, good question. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm not sure. In the stories that we have in the folklore, some of the women, I suppose, inadvertently are referring to themselves as witches because people will go to them and they will seek their help. So these women will go and try and help an animal that's sickly or or whatever. But whether they refer to themselves directly as witches, I couldn't say. (laughs) I suspect not. Your unaccepted sort of category of witches, were they dobbed in by other people in the community? Was it because other other people made an accusation of them as being witches that sort of got the ball rolling? Yeah, certainly in the 1616 trial, that's the one that we have like the most evidence for, where the, there was a, a case of three women that were tried and they were dobbed in by their neighbours. Some of the accusations against them, they name other people that they had bewitched or that they had done ill against so that they are being accused by neighbours, certainly. So 1616, you've got the three of them. And is that the biggest witch trial in Shetland, do you think, the three of them that you know about at the one time? That's the biggest one that we have any real evidence of that we've, yeah, that I've found. And there were more than three that were actually tried on that day, but there was three that were executed wow. on that day. So five people went to trial? Yeah, it was four or five on, on that day, but it was the three of them that and were then was the- executed. Were the executions done similarly to how they were in mainland Scotland? You know, was it hanging and then burning of the body or was it different in some way? Yeah, they were they were strangled here and then they were burnt. So the three in 1616, it says that they were all indicted and accused for modern witches, sorcerers and deceivers of the people. They were sentenced to be taken to the place of execution above Barry and Worriet, which is strangled at the stake and burnt in ashes. So this the exact same. So strangulation and then burning. Yeah. Do we know the names of those women before? I'm presuming it's women. We do. So firstly, we have Catherine John Stother. Um, so this is the Norse patronymics in the names. Uh, and we've got Jonet uh, Dinez, or that's maybe Danith. And we've got Barbara Thomas Dother, or Scord, as she's sometimes known. Those were the three in 1616. Do you know anything else about them? You know, like whether they were widows or single, or is it just purely their names? 
Yeah, we know we know a bit about them. So Catherine John's daughter, she was married. So she was married to a man called Thomas Kirkness. And Jonka was married to a man called Peter Kettle or Kettle, not sure. So we, we do, we know a little bit about them. And I think that Barbara Scord, or Thomas' daughter, the third witch, she was a widow. And one of the things that she was tried for was her daughter had been obviously coarse than a man. And she was evidently not very happy about this as a mother. And one of the things that was reported to the court was that she had gripped his member in her hand. The mum did. Yeah, so she was obviously fuming that her daughter and this man were up to no good and she was gripping his member in her, in her hand. That was her accusation of witchcraft. That was one of them. She was also accused of conversing, asking counsel and keeping company in society with the devil. She was trying to show someone how to increase the milk from their cows and she was said to have used a man's finger bone to stir the milk to increase, increase what they had. But later in the trial, it came out that it was a seal bone. It wasn't a, a human bone. We have those three women. Was it all women that were convicted in Shetland and executed? Perhaps the better first question should be, how many people were executed as witches in Shetland? In my research, I found nine people that were executed in Shetland and one of them was a man. Okay, so that's a wee bit below the average. I think the average in the rest of Scotland is 15% yeah. were men, so so only one. And do you know the circumstances of any of the other cases that are involved, or do you just know the numbers or the details? Yeah, we do. We know a little bit. So one of the most interesting cases that we have is a woman called Helen Stewart, and I found mention of her trial in a book by George Sinclair, which was first published in 1685, called Satan's Invisible World Discovered. And in it, he describes the story of her trial. So we know it's sometime before 1685. And he says, When Helen Stewart and her daughter were brought to the gibbet or gallows to be burned, the poor girl was so stupefied that she was thought to be then possessed by Satan. For after she had hung some little time at the gibbet, a black, pitchy ball foamed out of her mouth, which after the fire was kindled, grew to the bigness of a walnut, and then flew up like squibs into the air, this being a visible sign that the devil was gone out of her. So this was something that was recorded as being seen when she was executed. So, I mean, were the people seeing this? Did they imagine it, or, or where did it come from? Who was it, it was that recorded happening. that then? Does it say who it was? Yeah, it was in a book called Satan's Invisible World Discovered, which discusses various witches and acts of witchcraft throughout Scotland. And it had this reference to Shetland in it. So the book was published, first published in 1685. Right. OK, so it's definitely published during the time where people were still talking about it. It's not like the 20th century ones where people have created these myths. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder, were people like having a kind of a mass delusion? That's so weird. Like, is there some biological explanation? Like, was she maybe foaming at the mouth and then that was like interpreted differently that she was maybe bleeding internally and 
I mean, do we know, had she been tortured physically beforehand or? I mean, she's not even registered on the Scottish Witch database. Had she been strangled? That's the only reference that I could find to to her death. But it just highlights that idea that the devil can be inside your body and that there's a real danger that the devil will manifest from within you. So whether these people saw it or what they saw or what they believed they saw, the fact that it was recorded at this time as being fact, for me, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah absolutely nuts. <laughs> Completely nuts. <laughs> Completely. But they believed so strongly in it, though, that, you know, I suppose you see things that you want to see, you know, like that happens. It's like it's not dissimilar to the face of Jesus in your Pop-Tart. You know, I think it's the same the same sort of phenomenon. If you're looking for that, you'll see it, I reckon. I'm first of all worried that you're eating Pop-Tarts, Zoe. I, have to. I don't actually eat Pop-Tarts. That was absolutely a symbolic <laughs> thing that I just said there. Yeah, that's a thing. You know, like Jesus's face in, in my Pop-Tart or like the, you know, like the Turin Shroud. Yeah, no, no, I, I get what you mean. I, I also get what you mean that people place their own interpretations on what they see. If you're going to see a witch being burned, you expect there to be some devilment there. So whatever physical manifestation there is of whatever's happened to this person will be attributed to witchcraft. Presumably that's the the idea. And Mm -hmm. it was very much a public occasion. In Shetland here, we have 14 gallow hills that are recorded as places of execution. And during the witch trials in the 17th century, everything became localised and they were all carried out in Scalwa. But before that, the place of execution was always on the Gallow Hills. Can I ask you a question? Yes. When you're saying there was 14 Gallow Hills for executions, do you mean executions just of witches or just for general execution usage? I mean just for general executions. So witches would have or may have been executed there too, but it was general execution sites were there a lot of executions in Shetland as compared to Scotland? Or am I now discovering that actually Scottish people were just killing people left, right and centre in the past? <laughs> it's difficult to say. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure. I know that Norse law could be very different to Scots law. I thought you were going to say very brutal. but Also brutal. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at that. And I, I know what sort of um, research wormhole I'm going to go down now is to find out how widespread executions were. Because that also would maybe explain the extreme enthusiasm that Scotland showed for executing witches. You know, if we already had, I'm using the word we very loosely here, because I don't really want to be a part of that. But if Scotland already had this sort of leaning towards executions that might explain it a little bit more why Scotland was so into it that's that's really interesting to me which reveals a lot about my brain probably yeah there was 14 gallow hills and a lot of what happened there predates written records so we don't know how many people are executed there I know that when I was doing my research for this Shetland witches someone in our most northerly island up in Unst got in touch to say that their family Folklore tells the story of a woman that was said to be the last witch 
that was born on the Gallow Hill in Belmont in Unst. But there's no evidence of that. There's nothing in written records. So that's just kind of their family's oral history that's been passed down and, and it tells of the last witch that was burnt there. It's tricky that, isn't it, about, you know, if, you, if you've got historical training, as you do, you want to make sure that there's evidence for things and that even with, like, the best meaning intentions that people had, sometimes the family myths that we have are maybe self-serving or they've maybe gone sort of awry over the years or whatever. I mean, like, there's some stories in my family background, sadly nothing to do with witches, but some stuff that I just think, yeah, I don't really believe that. It's an interesting story, but I think that's probably just made up because people do it, I think. So I think that it's something we've talked about quite a lot, Claire and I, about this with, with regards to witch trials, is that it's a really, really interesting and compelling story. But if there's no evidence, then I personally am a bit kind of like, well, you know, it's a, it's a story. It's probably folkloric more than anything else. And it's interesting because it tells us about who the people were and who they, how they viewed themselves. But I am a, I'm a big fan of actual evidence. I'm exactly the same. And I managed to get a name for this lady. And I went to the archives and I searched every possibility of her name, every variation it could be. And I looked on the family history website and I went through all the names on there. I looked at the surname and the place and, and I just couldn't find anything but... What I picked up from you just a wee bit earlier going back, you have now found names of people that were accused and executed as witches that aren't on the survey of Scottish witchcraft. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because the database of Scottish witches lists 28 people that were tried in Shetland, 22 of whom were women and six who were men. But when I went to look at a lot of those names and just go through them systematically, a lot of them just didn't really feel like they should sit within Shetland. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and that, when I was chatting to the archivist in the archives, he, he agreed. He thinks that there are some inaccuracies within it as to some of the names. And quite a few of the names that I've found that we do have kind of documentary evidence they're not listed on the database so it's um it's been interesting looking at it and trying to kind of thread the stories together yeah because the database is fantastic it's a fantastic yeah, piece of work but i very much imagine that they weren't given a grant to go around every place in scotland looking up all the books i mean they would still be at it now if that's what they had to do they no doubt had to sort of restrict what information they got in and it could mean that there are just hundreds of names out there that we still don't know. Yeah that's it I'm sure that it's only scratching the surface in in places like Shetland. It's amazing and can we thank you so much for doing your work because you really are bringing the stories of these people back to us again and I know that you have a connection in the local museum that you are curator of to the story of people killed as witches? We do. So in the museum, and it's quite a controversial display in many ways, and it's, it's one that's had some negative feedback. So we have a, a three-legged iron kettle or pot, and inside it is ash from the cremation ground up on the Gallow Hill. So it's the ash from the site where the witches were burned. And it's a, a display within the museum that looks at witchcraft 
because we know the names of the last women that were said to be tried in Shetland as witches and executed and burned. So they were Barbara Tullock and Ellen King, and that was thought to be around 1700. So they were the last witches here that were executed. And so we have on display some of the ash from the burial site. So is the museum saying, a few questions here, one, that, that is those two women's ashes, the last two? I think that what the display is saying is that it could be any of the witches okay. that were executed. And two, are they actually really human ashes? Definitely. Well, I've not done any chemical analysis on it. Oh, come on, Laurie. I was going to ask Zoe, how would Laurie be able to? Well, I, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking that somebody would do a kind, you know, an analysis of it to say, you know, like what's going on there. I'm sorry, my phone's making crazy noises. And it's because I don't know how to turn the sound off when I get a message through to my laptop. We're all very professional here. Very sorry. I'm just thinking that, you know, that the museum would get that tested in some way. I'm not sure. I mean, there must be. I'm thinking of litmus paper. That shows you the limit of my scientific knowledge. And that's why I'm not a forensic specialist. But I want to know, are they really human remains? So I think it's well known where the burial site was and it's right up on the top of the hill and it's a peaty acidic environment up there lots of heather and there was a kind of mound and there was said to be a few inches of orange colored soil so when the rabbits were burrowing you could see the kind of orange colored soil coming out which was different to the surrounding area and since then, it's unfortunately the, the site, the hill, has been ploughed by a local farmer. So it's all been dispersed. But this was collected before that, when it was a mound. The writer side of me is just like, that's an amazing story. That's such a brilliant story. It's, it's fantastic and fascinating. And I've got to tell you, Laurie, I cannot wait till Claire and I can get back to getting out of the country again. And we can come and visit Shetland because that's definitely, I'd love to come up and have a look at that and see the Gallow Hills that you're talking about. It would just be amazing. However, I'm not so sure, and this may be where the controversial part comes in, that I want to see a bucket of ashes of some oh God I do that were burnt as witches. Okay, so there's some moral questions about this. Okay, however, what I would say as a teacher is that look at me, I'm totally engaged with this subject matter, thinking about that because of it. So as a kind of an educational tool, it's quite interesting. You know, I mean, I presume that people can't touch the remains. No, so the remains are behind a glass display case, so they can't be touched. And I think for me with a historian hat on, I, I can understand the ethical questions that, people might raise, and the museum have had complaints that yeah. it was unethical. But I would, I would say in response to that, that why do we have that feeling about the ashes when people don't have the same, necessarily always have the same feelings when they're thinking about prehistoric archaeological human remains? Mm -hmm. We have them in the museum here in Larwick, 
and people ask no questions about those. I think for me, it's because we know that those people were killed in a miscarriage of justice. Yes. Whereas we're not sure what happened to the other people. That and Claire, happened. that is why I value our friendship, because you made me a better person <laughs> who thinks about the consequences of my thoughts sometimes. <laughs> and that, that it's good sometimes to not speak and to have a moment of thinking before you speak. And I struggle with that sometimes. But I'm still, I still feel quite compelled that I want to go and have a look. I suppose that's the whole thing about it that we speak about, that these things are fascinating and compelling and we want to see them and we want to know about them. At the same time, we want to acknowledge the terrible parts. I think I would come back and I would say that when we're thinking about the, the human remains, the ashes that are on display, and we think about the maybe human remains of someone that, that wasn't killed through a miscarriage of justice, when we're thinking about those human remains, that means that somebody, whether it's an archaeologist or a farmer digging, has disturbed a grave. But with the ashes, were, they were not given a proper grave. They were not given that dignity in death. That's true. So there's nothing which, I mean, you're, you're campaigning to have them have a memorial made. So there's no memorial to these women and men. But in having the ashes and having the display that, that tells us that these women were unfairly accused and tried, then we are memorialising them in some way. We're giving them a bit of their dignity back and we're having the conversations and we're remembering them. Actually, I take that on board. That is true because without that display, we wouldn't be having this conversation, even if mm. it is controversial we wouldn't be discussing it. So I, I suppose, and we've spoken about this with Lilis Aidy, that we've got, because that she has a resting place, as it were, um, I won't call it a grave, but because there were actual parts of her that were kept and recovered and things can people could go and see, people have a connection with it. And I suppose if there is anything that holds a connection to these times, then it's good. I think, though, there's something that just makes me think it would be better to have those ashes put somewhere and then perhaps a photograph of them put up explaining that's what happened. But that's maybe me. Yeah, maybe if they were in kind of an urn, if they were in an enclosed you know, container so that they weren't visible, so that you weren't... Yeah, there's, there's almost something about it. And maybe I personally think that when you die, that your body's finished. It's not that I have a particular care over burials or graves or something is maybe the way that they're being held because if they were in an urn bizarrely I would think oh well that's appropriate but it's only another vessel isn't it strange how you're I wonder if it's just your it's your heritage Claire your Irish heritage that would have a great respect for I know you're not a Catholic but like the way that you were brought up yeah, with that not, maybe yeah, well, that we would have the proper weeks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but when my dad died, we took his ashes to Florida, which was where my grandmother lives, my dad's mum. And we took them there to put his ashes into the Gulf of Mexico because he, we used to go on holiday there and he totally loved it. So we went and we chucked them off the pier. So I can really remember what the ashes felt like 
And I don't know, it, did, it just didn't really disturb me in a strange way. So I'm not saying I've got positive feelings towards cremains, but maybe I'm less horrified by the thought of it. I don't know. It's a strange one, that. For me, when I when I look at it, I do, I wonder how much of what I'm looking at are human remains yeah. and how much of it is peat ash. But yeah. And it, could, it could be a myth itself, but it's a useful teaching tool, definitely, I think. Do you know what they did with the ashes of people that were executed for witchcraft? Is there any record of, you know, how they how they got rid of them, how they disposed of them? I mean, I presume they were just left on top of the hill. The gentleman that collected the ashes, initially, he describes how there was a, a good few inches of this orange soil where the cremations had been taking place. So presumably it was just left on the top of the hill. The hill wasn't used really for anything else other than grazing animals. So, so it probably lay there. And, and I mean, they were given no respect in life, so why would they have any respect in, in death? Absolutely. That's a sad but very, very true statement, Laurie. You have gathered together the names of the people in Shetland that were killed as witches in order that we can remember them, might you say the names of all those people that were killed? I can, indeed. Just give me two seconds while I find the actual name of the man, because he was known locally as Luggy, and he's still a local legend, actually. There's, there's a, a place called Luggy's Now, or Luggy's Knoll, or Hill, named after him. So I should probably find his real name so that we can. He was one of the victims, the man. Well, one of the one of the executed. He was known as he's known locally still as Luggy. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a windmill that recently went up on the hill on Luggy's now, and they've called it Luggy's windmill. If he was seen as being, you know, bad enough to be executed for being involved with witchcraft, I wonder why his name's lived on. It's it's a strange one, or was it like lived on to frighten people? I think because of the story as to why he was a witch. or He's known locally in local legend as a wizard. So growing up, we were told of Luggy the wizard who lived at Luggy's now. And Luggy was actually called Andrew Stevenson. And he was said to be able to always catch the most fish. Even when the weather was really, really bad, Luggy always came home with a catch and he always had a favourable wind so he was able to get the wind to do what he needed it to do to get his boat back to shore safely. So when the rest of the fleet were out at sea and they weren't catching any fish or when they were tied up, especially when they were tied up ashore because it was too windy, then Luggy was said to be able to cause the land to open up and he would then be able to drop his line down and he would just keep pulling up fish. I actually just thought that it was local legend that Luggy was just a local character in our folklore, a wizard. And it wasn't until I started doing research that I discovered that he was actually executed for witchcraft. So it's interesting that today we still speak about Luggies now and we still have, um, there was a windmill that was built in the area and it's called Luggies Windmill. You can Google it and you'll find Luggies Windmill. Wow, and and that is a man called Andrew Stevenson who was convicted of witchcraft. Convicted and executed for witchcraft, yep. And, and do you think some jealousy might be in a play? I mean, it's, oh, he can make the wind do what he wants, he can get all the 
the, the stuff. I mean, it seemed, quite frankly, that he was very, very lucky right up until the point that he stops being lucky when someone says, you're not lucky, you're a wizard. Exactly, yeah. And Brand, um, the Reverend John Brand, who came to Shetland in 1701 and spoke about the people that he encountered and our strange superstitions and all of that, he commented on Logie. And he said that he was able to fish in this manner by agency of evil spirits with whom he was in compact and covenant. Oh, and so do you think it was as a result of a minister coming to the island that he was called a wizard? No, I, I don't think so, because John Brand came to Shetland. He was writing in 1701 and we, we believed that the last witches were executed here in 1700. Ah. So this is a story that John Brand has been told. And it's interesting because Brand writes about how he actually says that, that in 1701, I do not hear of any such appearance as the devil makes in these isles. The brunies, fairies and other evil spirits that haunted and were familiar in our houses were dismissed and flayed at the breaking of our reformation. So he goes on to say how he doesn't encounter much witchcraft and devilry here. But later on, and this is what I found interesting, he tells a story that a minister, another minister, has told him in which an eagle was seen to take away a cockerel. And luckily, a charmer was nearby who took out a string from his pocket, tied it in nine knots and whispered some inutterable words. And then the eagle, as if by magic, dropped the cockerel where it was then retrieved by a boat and brought back to safety. So... The very things that people are being tried and executed for are also seen to be a positive in that the cockerel survived. It's, you know, it's just madness. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be any sensible line that you can draw between witchcraft and charming in that regard. It just doesn't make any sense. So, sorry, I uh, very much interrupted you earlier, earlier on. Um, if you want to name the names of the people that you have done your researches on and found out were executed as witches on Shetland. Yeah, so the, the names of the, the witches who were executed in Shetland are Helen Stewart and her daughter is mentioned in that trial. Catherine John's daughter, Jonka Dennis, Barbara Thomas' daughter, Marion Pardon or Peebles, and Luggy our wizard, who his name was Andrew Stevenson and Barbara Tullock and Alan King. So those are the, the nine people. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Laurie, for all your researches. As we mentioned before, we know that you're going to do your own podcast and do deep dives into each one of them and tell as much as we can. So please do let us know when you're going to do that so we can let everyone know that listens to our podcast because I'm sure that they would be fascinated to, to join in um, with yours. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for having me. And just congratulations on all your fantastic work. I honestly, I think what you are doing is just long overdue. So hats off to you for, for oh, doing it. And, oh, and I hope that you have every success. That's really kind. We'll definitely be up to visit you in Shetland as soon as we can start travelling. We've I got a round the world plan now. <laughs> I'll take you to the, the, the Gallow Hills. 
And oh, yeah. uh, as I'm not fond of flying, we'll have to get there by slow boat. Claire, I'm telling you, if we have to go on a boat, I'll have to take Valium or something. I'll be conked out. I can't cope with uh, with boat journeys. So actually, I could be a perfect travelling companion for you on the boat. I'll need more of Valium to get on the tiny plane to Shetland. Oh, no. No, no. Really? Which is worse? Oh, no. I found the boat. Well, well, whatever way we get there, we really look forward to seeing in the future. And we hope you stay in contact and keep us updated. If you've got any new information, um, if you find any new stories that you want to share with us, please do stay in contact so we can talk to you. I will. And there's there's actually one more story that I, that I think I should share with you. And it's when earlier on I spoke about accepted witches. And there's one story which I found fascinating, and it was a story from the island of Fettler. And in that story, there was a woman who asked for a passage on a boat, and she wanted to be brought to Fettler. But the men had just got this new boat, and it was bad luck to take a woman, in it, especially in a new boat. So they refused her passage, and she cursed them, and she cursed their boat. And on the way back to the neighbouring island, a storm came out of nowhere. It was a fine, described as a fine summer's day and a storm came out of nowhere and it upturned the boat. Two of the men that were on the boat lost their lives, but the young boy was able to swim to shore and he climbed up onto the cliffs where he collapsed through exhaustion. He was discovered and he was brought back home and eventually he came around and he told the story of the witch who had cursed the boat and caused the death of the two men. But it was agreed in the community and it was noted and passed down again in the in the stories that he he shouldn't tell this story to the justices of peace that were coming to find out about it. And the reason that he wasn't to tell the story was because they would burn her as a witch and she would haunt them. Wow. So she fear of what she could do long term. So that's one of my one of my ideas as to why because really relatively Shetland has fewer witches like records of witches burnt here than what we would find in Scotland but the stories are no less but I think that people here were deeply deeply superstitious and superstitious in a way that I think trumps any other area they were just a deeply superstitious people and I think that for that reason for the fear of what the witch might do beyond the grave then they just tolerated them, quietly accepted them as a part of their community, a problem that they had to deal with. That's interesting because when we spoke to Paula Keogh, she kind of said the same thing, that that if these people were seen as so powerful, you didn't want to tangle with them because whilst you may be able to get rid of them in life, you wouldn't want to tangle with them after their death. What a story. One thing that I'm going to do is, um, it was after listening to one of your other episodes, is in Scalloa, there's a couple of housing developments being built. So I'm going to lobby the local housing authority and I'm going to get a suite named after one of our witches. Good for you. Good for you. That's a great idea. Whoever Upfield will be delighted. And we'll keep going. I'll let you know how I go with that. (laughs) Please do keep us updated. That would be absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode. As ever, please do tell people about our different social media places. So we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. 
and we've obviously got the website. So please do get in touch. Let us know if you are listening and if you're enjoying it. And please also tell people that don't use social media because there'll be lots of people that don't use Twitter and so on who might still enjoy the podcasts. So please do share because obviously the more people that know about the campaign, I think the higher chance we have of success. Yeah. Can I say the discussions on Instagram are really surprising because I usually think of Instagram as just a photo. And every week that we have the podcast, I put up a photo of what it's about and then say, hey, it's this week's podcast. And last week I put up about the question whether or not a national memorial should go hand in hand or should be a museum of witchcraft trials. And the responses on Instagram were huge. There was a huge Ah. number of people writing, we think it's a a great idea. There were no, no negatives, in fact. I've not come across anyone that doesn't think it's a good idea. I mean, I suppose... To borrow a religious phrase, you are preaching to the converted if you're asking people who are listening yeah. to a Scotland podcast whether or not they think that would be a good idea. But we just had so many people on Instagram getting in contact and saying how good an idea it was that they thought. I mean, we have people saying, yes, 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 let's educate. The museum's a great idea. Here are a few examples. We have Handsome Healing saying, yes, a museum would be amazing. We have Noel Harrison reminding us of the memorial in Vardo in Norway and asking us whether or not we've interviewed Professor Viv Helene Willemson yet. And in fact, we did speak with her at the International Women's Day event. Again, that might be a good idea to approach her to see if she'll speak to us about that. Other people saying a museum would be amazing. Quite a few people saying there needs to be both. There needs to be a national memorial and a museum. And a Leslie, a listener in America, Leslie saying, yes, a museum in America. We have the Salem Witch Museum, which you recently featured. It's a great educational tool. Some other people saying that they love the idea. So I'm just really, really surprised that Instagram, which I thought was just more really about photos, people were really, really engaging in that way. So um, if you're following us on Twitter or Facebook, nip over onto Instagram because it's quite a lively conversation going on. Yeah, no, it's good and it's great. You can see people kind of coming together that are like-minded and it's nice. And it's people all over the world as well. We've got sort of regular contributors to the different things like say on Facebook and on Twitter and it's really nice. On Instagram, there's a lot of modern day witches following us. They really get the difference between the people that were killed as witches and what they do in the modern day as well, which I think is really, really good to see. They're, They're so supportive of what happened to those people who were called witches whilst, of course, being very different 21st century witches. Yeah, yeah. So thanks so much for listening, and hopefully we'll speak to you, in inverted commas, over the week in our different places. But we'll be back again in a fortnight. In a fortnight's time. That Lovely. Be. That was okay. a professional ending there, Zoe. Almost, but I mean, let's not ruin it by it not being ruined. <laughs> we almost have. Thank you very much, and good night. Good night. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.